All right, guys, I'm going to be quite honest. I've done like 20 takes for this and normally do a one and done. Uh, I'm struggling right now. I'm, I'm going on fumes. It's late in the day and I got to get this done. So I'm going to make this short and sweet, even though that has effectively made it longer than it needs to be. We got Dan and Kara from NutriSense on to talk all things health and wellness. We do talk about the impact of health with the current pandemic. We talk about key takeaways and really what their product is, which is a continuous glucose monitoring device. It is the very best that I've tried. I've tried a number of them. And even though they're not a sponsor, I wanted to have them on the show. They had an excellent podcast where I first heard them on Dr. Paul Saladino's show. Um, and I can't even remember the name of that show, but I'll link to it in the show notes, the YouTube channel where they really get geeky in the science. Uh, I try to dumb it down as best I can and give some key takeaways from everything they've learned from the thousands of clients that they've had. And uh, what are the best practices if we, whether or whether or whether not we decide to try out a CGM for ourselves. So all that on the show today, uh, check out our sponsors. These guys make the show possible. Uh, the very best nootropic and energy drink that I've, it's all in one I've ever tried is by a company called Sovereignty. The product is called Purpose. Uh, I'm not on it right now, as you clearly may tell, but one of the things that makes it unique is they use a cannabinoid from cannabis that is completely legal, known as CGN, and it is incredible nootropic alongside uh, Bacopa and some other really good adaptogenic herbs. They also use time-release caffeine, which is great because it's no rocket ship ride, but you feel calm and alert. And one of the things we did to test and verify this is they brought over a, a product called HeartQuest that measured my HRV in real time after taking their product. And what we saw is as my metabolic rate increased and I was burning more calories and was more alert, my HRV increased. And if any of you have ever done self-quantification with things like the Aura Ring or the Whoop Watch, you will find that if you take something that jacks you up, uh, too much coffee, too much caffeine, modafinil, et cetera, you're going to see HRV drop. And even though you're going to feel alert and be able to concentrate, you may or may not necessarily feel peace inside. So the fact that we can get HRV to increase at the same time as we're getting our alertness to increase, it really sets it apart from everything I've ever tried before. And they're doing a awesome money back guarantee deal for all my listeners where they will not only refund you 100% of the money you spend on purpose, they're going to buy your favorite supplement in addition to that. So they will buy you a bottle of any supplement you want in addition to giving you a 100% refund. That's how much these guys are standing by their product. It is the very best I've ever used for cognitive function and energy. And you can get that at sovereignty.co slash Kyle. I'll link to that in the show notes for the URL, but it is S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O slash K-Y-L-E to get your product there. We're also brought to you by Dry Farm Wines. Dry Farm Wines is the best wine in the world. Uh, I had Todd White, the CEO, on my podcast a couple of times. I will for sure run him back when I see him next. He is, is just phenomenal, phenomenal guy who set out to find the best organic and biodynamically farmed wines there are. And so traveling the world, he's gotten uh, family farms, single origin farms from Spain, Italy, France, South Africa, all over Austria, Germany, and all of them have one thing in common. They make very high quality wine with nothing else added to it. There's no added sulfites. There's no dyes. There's nothing nasty that's going to leave you with a hangover the next day. And what's also cool is there's only a gram of carbohydrate per bottle. That would mean this is a keto wine. There is a maximum of 12 and a half 
alcohol percent per volume, which is huge because I like to have more than a glass of wine. Certainly, if I've got friends and family around and we're cracking a few bottles, I want to try the different wines. And I can do that without having to pay for it the next day. You know, obviously, there is a, a point of diminishing returns, but at the same time, I know. One glass of regular wine will leave me feeling a little bit dazed and confused the next day, but um, I can get away with a lot more of this good stuff and uh, not suffer the consequences the next day because it's only really good ingredients in here, only organic and biodynamically farmed and nothing else added to that. You can get a free, or actually not a free, that would be illegal. You can get a extra bottle for a penny if you go to dryfarmwines.com slash Kyle and you get a subscription, they will give you an extra bottle with your subscription for one penny. So you can get six red, six white, you can mix and match and whatever uh, you end up liking, all you got to do is email them and they'll send you more bottles of what you like and what you love. So that's dryfarmwines.com slash Kyle. Check them out. I love those guys dearly. Also check out onefarm.com. One farm is the best CBD product on the planet. They make tinctures, they make all sorts of cool stuff for your dog, for yourself, and they have uh, some amazing night serums, facial creams, and rubs. So one of the things that my wife and I do is we bust out the massage table and uh, don't get any weird ideas, <laughs> but we get out on the massage table and we'll give each other rub downs with this CBD cream. And sometimes we'll use a Theragun on us with the CBD cream. And it's just one of the most relaxing and beneficial ways to help each other recover and connect to each other in a loving way. Um, all sorts of good stuff over at onefarm.com. And if you go to onefarm.com slash Kyle, you will get 15% off your entire order. Onefarm.com slash Kyle for that. We are also brought to you by Lucy. This is a company that was founded by Caltech scientists who were former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative and researched and developed for over three years. They created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that has three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate, and a lozenges for migs as well. This, is, can, this can be enjoyed anywhere, on a flight, at work, on the go, even in the gym. And I'll tell you right now, nicotine has become a staple. Uh, it's something that I had spoken to Aubrey about prior to him writing Own the Day, Own Your Life. And that's why I think in large part it was included in Own the Day, Own Your Life because both of us have a love affair with nicotine. I first heard Rob Wolf and uh, Ben Greenfield discussing this, the benefits of nicotine as a nootropic and as something that can help really as a muse. I think that's why we see writers and comics and different people using that to jog their mind. Um, but you want to have a clean source. We know that American tobacco is absolute garbage. We know it causes cancer. Nicotine in and of itself is uh, very clean. It's a great product and you can check that out. You're going to get 20% off any order over at lucy.co and enter KKP upon checkout. That is L-U-C-Y dot C-O and enter the promo code KKP at checkout. One more time, lucy.co, KKP at checkout, and you're going to get 20% off your entire order. These guys are phenomenal. I know you're going to love them. So without further ado, my dudes, Dan and Kara from NutriSense are on. This is our redo with NutriSense. Um, uh, real quick, like we did last time, Dan, introduce yourself, and Kara, introduce yourself. And then we'll just get each, each of y'all's backgrounds, how you got into being a part of uh, the CGM world. And then we'll just take a deep dive into all things related to CGM's health and wellness and, and the goodness that comes out of modern technology. Sure. My name is Dan Zavrotny. I come from a background of healthcare consulting, where my job was actually optimized profitability in the healthcare industry. I worked with three out of top 10 hospitals in the US. 
Uh, however, I quickly realized that hospital profitability does not correlate with improved patient outcomes. Oftentimes, there's actually a negative correlation. Based on that, I decided to start a health technology company with a focus on personalized data by leveraging real-time continuous glucose monitoring technology to really help people own their health instead of relying on the medical industry to do it. Since then, we've worked with thousands of people ranging from Olympic athletes to type 2 diabetics. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, funny, it's a funny thing. I, I didn't realize this till um, my wife and my sister were both pregnant at the same time with our first children. And my sister was having her child at Kaiser and Kaiser requires your, its own healthcare, its own insurance. You basically pay mm-hmm. Kaiser. And uh, coincidentally, they have the lowest rate of C-section in the country. And the reason for that is it comes out of their pocket to tack on any extra procedure. Whereas everyone else in the country gets paid more and profits from doing any extra procedure. So if it's on the fence, rather than let the people really try to push and get that baby out, they say, nope, it's too close to call. We're going C-section. And uh, I found that very interesting. And, you know, like, it's funny because my sister with her firstborn, it really was a struggle. I was in the room with my brother-in-law and both of us had a leg hoisted on a shoulder and we were both telling her to push and they had to get the suction cup out and like really get my nephew out. Wow. But thankfully that happened and it never would have happened in any other hospital. You know, they, they never would have taken it that far. And they're even telling her like, you got three more pushes before we have to cut you open. And I'm like, let's go, let's go. And on the third push, she got him out with the doctor pulling. Uh, wow. so, but that, that's just, you know, like one very small example, probably out of tens of thousands where that happens, where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily going to create a better outcome by going through, uh, you know, extra medicine or extra procedures or extra that they want to tack on. And, um, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, it doesn't necessarily equal better outcome. No. And it's interesting that one of the things I always tell people, if you ever have a health issue, always Google the CEO of the hospital. If the CEO of the hospital is a former doctor, the likelihood of you having a better outcome significantly improves because a lot of times the CEO of the hospitals are actually finance and accounting people. And what they're doing is they're trying to just, again, people like me trying to optimize profitability, but they've never been in a situation where they have to deal with patients. So for them, they say, oh, that's an expense. That's not necessary. That's an expense. Instead of saying like, maybe that thing is actually important to have uh, and it helps people basically have better outcomes. I like that. Kara, jump right in. Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian. My interest in, in joining NutriSense came from my experience in the hospital systems as well. So I was a clinical dietitian working mostly in ICUs. And I quickly came to realize most people are not coming into an ICU because of trauma or a gunshot wound, but they're coming in because of complications of lifestyle related chronic conditions. Um, So five of the top seven killers in the United States are all related to metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. And you're just seeing people come into the hospital day in, day out, having complications and suffering from these conditions that we could have prevented. And it's super frustrating experience. And kind of like Dan said, that the hospital system is not necessarily trying to fix that root cause. They're just trying to do whatever procedure you need to address the immediate symptom and send you back home. Um, so that was very frustrating. And so I joined up with Dan and, and our third partner, Alex, to start NutriSense so that we could really address these early problems before you have to get to the ICU of having all these complications. So we're really driving at metabolic health and what that means and then trying to catch that super early and focusing on prevention. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't like to poo-poo on doctors or Western medicine. I've had many doctors on the show. I absolutely love them. Some of which are on 
cutting edge research when it mm-hmm. comes to metabolic function and dysfunction. Guys like Dr. Dominic Diagostino, Dr. Peter Atia, um, you know, many people that I hold with high regard. And of course, my boy, Dr. Craig Conover, who's our family medicine doc, a functional medicine doctor, and really into alternative up-to-date techniques. But the vast majority of doctors that you would see, um, you know, for a physical, for your standard primary care, are not going to teach you about metabolic function. They're not going to teach you about what it means to be healthy. And most of them don't know it for themselves. You know, and, and like the old saying goes, if, if uh, the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Mm-hmm. And if your only tool is pharmaceuticals, you know, there's not a ton of great pharmaceuticals that work well to create health. You know, even, even along the lines of metabolic function, you, a lot of people talk about metformin and things like that. That's not going to outright make you healthy. And it's certainly there is no pharmaceutical and no supplement known to man that can overcome a shitty diet. So first, let, let's unpack uh, what it what it means to have metabolic flexibility, and what are you know the, the dangers of being metabolically unfit. Yeah, absolutely. So metabolic flexibility at the root is just the capacity for an organism or even a single cell to adapt fuel oxidation to a fuel availability. So it's this crosstalk between fuel sources. So. Um, you know, if you have glucose in the system and that's available, you can utilize that, create that for energy, and then switch back to burning fat once the glucose is done. So this is basically requires a lot of crosstalk communication between the body, different systems, different hormones. And metabolic disorders are always characterized by this inability to orchestrate this process. So Um, At the roots, they're not able to communicate well. So insulin is a hormone. All hormones are essentially just communicators trying to piece together all the different systems happening in the body. And then when a cell is no longer listening to the effects of insulin, it becomes insulin resistant. And then we have this whole host of problems. So insulin resistance is really at the root of obviously diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease dementia, chronic kidney disease, all of these main chronic conditions that are affecting everyone in the United States and in all countries, actually, it's over the world. So in the United States, it's estimated that over 80% of people have some signs of insulin resistance. But in other countries, China, India, Europe, Canada, they're around a third to 50% of people are having insulin resistance. So it's this major problem and glucose is at the root of this because if you think of the body as a car, as an engine, glucose is like the fuel that is driving it primarily. I like to describe somebody who's fat adapted and able to burn both ketones and glucose as like a hybrid car. You can easily switch between fuel sources based on what's appropriate for the situation. So we have to try to get somebody to that easy switching, that efficiency, that smooth running. And a lot of people are really dependent on just one fuel source, which is glucose. So we have to try to figure that out and fix it. Yeah, it's one of the one of the issues, one of the many issues with the modern world is the fact that no one has gone without food in, in at least in the West. You know, there's plenty of people on Earth that go without food, uh, plenty of food shortages, plenty of starving kids that I'm not going to speak lightly about that. But a problem we have certainly in America and a lot of modern civilizations is that we don't go two or three hours without food. Mm -hmm. And most often that is highly processed and loaded with carbohydrates. So, you know, the first time I started reading about ketogenic diets, I forget which book it was in, but they're basically stating like, if if you're in your thirties and you look back upon your life, when was there a stretch other than sleep that you went more than five hours without food? It's, you could probably count on one hand, 
how many times that happened. And more importantly, or equally importantly to that is the fact that every time you ate food, you ate carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we rewind the clock and look ancestrally, there's quite a few people with the genetics that where your ancestors lived, they went at least without carbohydrates periodically, you know, for a month, two months, three months, just due to seasonal shortages. This is, you know, predating refrigeration, predating shipping containers, bringing you bananas from Panama year round or berries from Mexico. That stuff just didn't happen. And uh, really, there's a lot of benefit to that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the other issues that are going on? I just read an article that showed that by by 18 years old, the average American kid will have watched, spent two, year, two years in front of a screen. So between a tablet, a phone, or a TV, by the, by the time they turn 18, two years of their life is spent in front of a screen. And that's obviously an issue. Childhood obesity is, <laughs> it's not only on the rise, but it's, it's rapidly increasing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hockey stick, exponential rate of increase. And people just don't know where to look when it comes to this stuff. And you know, as I mentioned before, genetics definitely play a factor. But you know, even even some of the good literature that got me into this space, you know, guys like um, Dr. David Perlmutter who wrote Grain Brain, you know, and we'll talk about the hemoglobin A1C test, how it's you know maybe not even a dated test, maybe it just never was good to begin with, um, or you know, Wired to Eat with Rob Wolf, which you know, back in the day, CGMs cost a lot of money. And they certainly have come down in price. And we'll talk about the future of this technology as well a little bit later, Dan, um, you know, as prices come down and things like that. But it was just largely unavailable to people. And a lot of people couldn't get prescriptions unless you were, you know, some some biohacking guy at the top of the influencer ladder or you had the money to spend on it. And um, now that this is becoming more available, we have access to fine tune and find out what's right for us. Because Mm -hmm. what I was getting to on genetics is, you know, if I have a parent that is from one place on earth that's 100% you know, from the equator. The whole lineage has never been broken. And another parent from one of the poles, like an Inuit from Alaska. If we have five, if there's five kids in that family, all blood related, every one of them is going to take different pieces from their parents. Every one of them is going to process carbohydrates different. And it's not enough to just say, my parents are from here. This is the way we eat. There is a certain degree of what my unique expression genetically looks like what the epigenetics look like and how I respond to different things. So I found that super interesting. You know, I did Rob Wolf's seven day um, uh, carbohydrate challenge where, you know, he tried to create and he did it pretty well, but he he did, um, you know, seven days. First thing in the morning, you have 50 grams of carbohydrates with nothing else of one particular food to really see what works and what doesn't. But that is with, you know, the, the traditional finger prick blood glucose monitor. So, um, some things that I found out with that where I do well with sweet potatoes, I don't do well with white rice. And, you know, fast forward, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack my CGM data. That, it, it looked pretty much universal. And if anything other than berries was going to cause an issue. So, and it's certainly at the amount that I would eat it at. So I want to talk about that. Um, I definitely want to dive into the differences. So maybe we can start there. What are some of the differences between the CGM data and traditional blood glucose data that we would get, you know, doing a postprandial check two hours after we eat? Yeah, 100%. So traditionally, you're either going to know what's happening with your glucose from by going to your primary care physician and getting either a fasting glucose or hemoglobin A1C, or you could buy a glucose meter over the counter and check it randomly throughout the day. 
Um, so to dive into the first, if you're going to your doctor's office, you're going to get a fasting glucose just on a regular panel. And that's telling you what's happening with your glucose in a fasted state. That's still important. We want to know that, but it's just a single metric that's only telling you a little bit of what's going on. Most of the time, we're in a fed state, um, probably more in a fed state than we should be. But most of the time, we're in a fed state. So showing fasting is just a little bit of a snippet. And with the caveat of the fasting glucose, um, traditionally, they're going to say if it's below 100, that that's okay. That's not pre-diabetes. That's not diabetes by any sort of formal organization. But based on the research that is available, we're holding that threshold to below 90 as optimal. Um, there's a lot of evidence that once you're in the glucose ranges of 90 to 100 in a fasted state, that you're starting to see increased risk for these chronic conditions and insulin resistance. So I really like to see fasting glucose between 70 and 90. Um, and then there's the second metric, which is hemoglobin A1C. So first, what is this actually measuring? It is your average glucose over a three months time span. Um, so inherently, average glucose means you're missing those highs, you're missing the lows, you're just saying the average. Um, I think a lot of people have idolized hemoglobin A1C as this metric for if I'm diabetic or not, but really it's just telling us the average. So again, postprandial state when you're eating, you might have these huge spikes coming way back down and that's never getting caught on that metric. And then, um, like you said, it might not have ever been a great metric to start with because it really only has about a 50% sensitivity. So about half the time it might give you a false positive or a false negative. Um, this is because it's basing the three month time span of your average glucose based off of your red blood cell life. So average red blood cell lives for 90 days and it's making that correlation based on that assumption. But a lot of people don't have red blood cells that live 90 days. So in the case of anemia, um, in the case of a low carb ketogenic diet, um, in the case of blood loss, smoking, high glucose levels, all of those factors alter your red blood cell life. Um, so a lot of those are super common and that's why it's causing it to be skewed potentially in the opposite direction. So I think it's good to see an absolute value. If you come back with a hemoglobin A1C of 11%, that's a pretty strong signal that something's wrong with your glucose. Um, that's not going to be accounted for for just anemia. But if it's a little bit abnormal, it might not really be telling you that much. Yeah, and also I remember Tim Noakes talking about that as well as Mark Sisson um, two guys who have, you know, had a long history with distance running, uh, talking about red blood cell lifespan and how if you're a distance runner, mm -hmm. because there's so many capillaries in the bottom of your feet, that pounding is actually breaking down red blood cells at a much faster rate. So your turnover is going to be faster. And that's just a natural process of being one type of athlete. There's many other types of athletes that also run into that issue. And what they found, which I the reason I bring those guys up is that you could be perfectly healthy and still be metabolically unfit. You know, mm -hmm. you could look the, you could walk the walk in terms of looks, but not have the interior that is processing things correctly, especially when you're slamming sports gels and, uh, you know, uh, whatever Gatorade's version of, of Gushers candy is for mm -hmm. electrolytes and, and carbohydrates. All of these processed things are going to lead to metabolic inflexibility, even if you are burning off the calories and burning off the carbohydrates. 100%. Yeah. When you're doing these huge glucose loads, you may burn it off and you may have cleared your glycogen stores, but you're still stressing the pancreas really hard in those moments of massive refined carbohydrate intake. You're stressing the pancreas, you're stressing the mitochondria. It's this whole host of oxidative stress that comes because of it. So you're exactly right. It's what we look like is not always representative of what's happening on the inside. 
we've really seen this a lot with people who are professional athletes or long distance or endurance athletes. Uh, we've had some professional soccer players who they're, you know, they're running 10 miles a time at a game or a practice and they're burning whatever they need, but they're eating McDonald's, you know, four times a day and they don't care. Right. And they look great. They have, you know, their six pack, their Jack, but still like they have extremely bad metabolic flexibility. Yeah. I know you guys, uh, you guys have talked with uh, Paul Saladino, the carnivore doc, who's been on the show a couple of times, and I'll link to your podcast in the show notes. Um, they, I'll link to the YouTube, actually, because you guys did some great video overlay and really took a deep dive into his stuff. And, you know, I had jokingly said when I originally spoke to Dan that, okay, cool, we'll look at two weeks of data of him just eating meat and see if fucking, you know, <laughs> it'll, look, it'll, it'll look like a dead person, you know, it'll just be a straight line all the way across on his glucose. But um, in the, in the, um, in the vein of, of doing good science, he consumed carbohydrates and he didn't go off the register. You know, he ate a lot of berries and had honey as, as I think was his favorite form of carbohydrate. Maybe that's because it's an animal product and he could loosely call that carnivore. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, but um, it was interesting to see, you know, there's a lot of things there, but one of the things he talked about was how the media, you know, and, and I do want to talk about how this pertains to COVID-19 and our very current, you know, health crisis with the pandemic. But um, they had pointed out, and I forget which media outlet it was, but it pointed out like, uh, you know, this this guy, and they you know showed this dude who was kind of jacked and and you know more on the um, he looked the look, you know. So they they had said, hey, it can happen to anyone. COVID doesn't care who you are, and everyone can be taken down by this thing. And it showed this guy, and then you know, of course. Saladino does some research. He looks on the Instagram and what's this dude eating? He's eating McDonald's. He's slamming Coca Cola <laughs> products and things like that. And it's like you know. It's, it's one thing to just point at McDonald's, but it's another thing when you look at hyperpalatable food, processed food, uh, hydrogenated vegetable oils, and you combine that with, I think, 45 grams of sugar in one can of soda. Yep. And no one's drinking soda anymore. You go to McDonald's, it's supersize me. Let me get 60 ounces of this thing and, and slam damn near half a gallon of sugar. That's going to cause some serious stress in the body. And I think it's the combination of the concert of all these things. That's really the issue. I point that out because that is yet another example of the media not quite doing their homework, but it's also an example of somebody who who looks the look, walks the walk in terms of what people might think of them exteriorly and does not have the same level of health on the inside. And uh, people can just take that and, and think what they want from it. But it's it's that's not the narrative we should be talking about. And certainly... Um, Amidst all the, the the crap that has been circling around COVID-19 and all of the hype from the media, there really hasn't been anybody talking about what it actually means to be healthy and what, what that actually means for us in terms of our own immunity and in terms of not just when we come down with this, how we survive or not survive, but also if we actually come down with it at all. You know, that that's something that um, Saladino pointed out to me on the show was when you look at the USS Princess which is actually a fair model of, you know, when we look at America as a whole, the whole is not healthy. And the USS Princess had a wide variety, aging from kids to the elderly, most of which were not super healthy people. And the interesting thing about them is they were quarantined to the ship when they found out there was an outbreak, but they were not quarantined to their rooms and they didn't have to wear masks. So as Dr. Zach Bush pointed out, you have these incredible spreaders of disease, children, running through the halls, they're eating in the same places, they're running around, spreading this around, and they still found the same numbers of people relatively who were infected. So that means exposure rate, which is something that we haven't even been talking about, is likely as high as it gets. 95 to 100% of those people were exposed to COVID-19. Of that, the standard 
number of people infected. And of the standard number of people affected, we saw this or infected, we saw the same numbers really show up. 60% uh, you know, asymptomatic, meaning they had no signs or symptoms, 20% mild symptoms, and another 20% moderate to severe. So out of that, I think we can, it really is like one of the best metrics to look at in terms of how this is going to hit us as a population. But I want you to really dive into, you know, what are the interesting things that are coming out around COVID-19 that you brought up on Paul's show? Because I think it's important for us to discuss that and then, again, continue this conversation on health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's similar research on um, like Navy ships of similar exposure as, as the cruise line. So um, that's extremely interesting. But I appreciate that Paul is spreading this message, but it's certainly not mainstream. And I'm hoping if, if all of us are loud enough about it, it will start to become a little bit more mainstream. But now is especially the time to get metabolically healthy. One of the most important things you can be doing at this time is to get your metabolic health in better condition because it's the number one risk factor at this point in time, um, especially obesity. So Multiple studies suggest now that obesity is only second to age as a risk factor for hospitalization or and mortality with COVID. Um, and then there's plenty of research studies now of just the independent link between glucose levels and COVID infection risk and outcomes. Um, so this is not even with tied to a diabetes diagnosis. This is just hyperglycemia or insulin resistance independent of diabetes. So any sort of raise in glucose levels outside of a normal homeostatic range, which we can dive into, is going to both increase your risk of getting COVID and increase mortality. So the big research study that looked into the details of this, it was a difference between a 1% and an 11% death rate for those who had glucose values that were reaching above 180, Um, which trust me, a lot of people are reaching above 180 that have any signs of metabolic disorder or insulin resistance. So just getting into that semi-normal range, not even optimal, but just good can really make a big difference. Um, So if we can tell people this and then they can just do simple things that lower those huge postprandial spikes, like not eating the soda, not eating juice, maybe going outside, not staying inside all the time, but going outside, getting some light exposure, going on walks. We need to make sure that people have access to things like gyms and can still work out this is going to make a much more meaningful difference. And in my opinion, based on the research that is available. And we've known the link between glucose and immune system for a long time. Um, I always pull on my experience at the hospital. One of my most common consults was from surgical teams where they wouldn't do an operation if glucose levels were too high. They simply won't operate it because it's too high of an infection risk. Um, that link has always been there with any sort of immune compromised state and glucose levels. So just having those high glucose levels weakens our innate immune response and our, our affects our immune cells. So this needs to be told to people. Um, I, the only people I've seen that are doing this recently is I think England has made, um, the UK has made some sort of public announcement about trying to connect obesity and COVID and like they're doing this whole campaign Um, that's the first I've really seen it kind of in mainstream effects. I'm hoping that has some sort of trickle down effect. Um, we'll see how they're recommending people to lose weight, but any sort of movement or improvement in diet can make a big difference. It doesn't have to be this dramatic change to make a difference. And I think it's important to mention a lot of people think about like, Hey, for years I've been eating poorly and I'm afraid that, you know, I should just sit at home now. Uh, and I can't do anything. You could make changes today. These are changes that are free. 
You don't need to spend any money. You don't need to buy any medicine. Just start doing things like intermittent fasting, change your calorie, you know, calorie intake, reduce your you know, carb intake, try eating less processed foods. There are simple steps you can take that cost you nothing. And immediately you will see improved effects, right? So that's a key that people have to think about. You don't need to spend years now going to the gym to really get the benefit. You get it from the day you start. Yeah, I love that. You know, there's there's a couple of things that are popping up for me. One, uh, I think Oaxaca was the first city in Mexico, and I haven't I haven't verified this, but I, I've heard that Oaxaca is now banning all sugary drinks. Now that may be, mm-hmm. we may see a surge in diet soda with aspartame and all, all our <laughs> artificial sweeteners. I'm not sure how they're gonna how they're gonna work with that, but. Um, they see the correlation there and Oaxaca is, you know, a town in the mountains. That is where uh, Marie Sabina and the great psilocybin stories come from. But um, so maybe they're a little bit more woke than the rest of Mexico. I don't know, but we'll see how that pans out. We'll see if that starts to have a trickle effect on how we view health and how we view like our access to this stuff. You know, it's, I'm not for, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of libertarian in the sense that I think we should have access to whatever we want to have access to people. If they want to smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. sure. But at the same time, when it's, shit tobacco that kills you, that should be regulated versus organic tobacco where I've met, you know, 99 year old shaman that have smoked organic tobacco (laughs) their entire lives and they don't have a word for cancer in their tribe. It doesn't exist. So those are huge differences and and not to go down the psychedelics rabbit hole, but um, if we're circling back here towards health, there are very clear cut things. And one of the things that I absolutely loved that, that Paul talked about is the fact that say you have a hundred pounds to lose to actually be quote unquote in the normal BMI or just to get, you know, to where you want to be physically, that's going to take some time. It took you time to put on hundred pounds. It's going to take time to get hundred pounds off, but it doesn't take nearly as long to build some metabolic flexibility. You know, you guys have seen improvements in a very short period of time. Can you speak to that? How rapid some of these changes can take place in terms of internal health? hundred percent. Yeah. So we see a lot of non-diabetics, but we also see a lot of diabetics who are lifestyle controlled, not on insulin. And you can see within a week of making dietary changes, that massive decrease in postprandial spikes. So if, if you stop eating the things that are driving your glucose up, that you're not going to see as high of glucose values, it can be really, really fast within a week, we can see a major difference. And that's going to bring your average glucose down, of course, and it's going to bring your glycemic variability down. The harder part that takes longer time is bringing down fasting glucose because it's, it's endogenous, endogenously regulated. So the liver has to like relearn how to do some of these things. And that takes a little bit longer, but that's just step three of these two other major factors. Reducing those big postprandial spikes in glycemic variability are going to make 80% of the difference. And then we can take a little longer to keep refining that over time. So we can do it in a week, 100%. Yeah, that, that, that to me is, is the head scratcher. And, but it's also the thing that gives a lot of hope because it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, there's a lot of people right now that are looking at themselves. They're looking at the current state and they're, or wherever they're living, maybe they still don't have access to gyms or, you know, we saw a resurgence in Austin here and they've shut down all of our rivers and lakes. You know, you can only be out there on a boat or a stand up paddleboard. If you don't own one of those, you're not allowed to go hang out at the shore. So it's like, all right, you're taking, you're keeping us from natural water supply. You're keeping us from the sunlight. You're keeping us from getting outside in nature. That's an issue. And I can table that issue. But if we start to lose the ability to work out with other people, a lot of people don't have home gyms. And one thing that I want to remind them of is the fact that what you're actually putting into your body matters more when it comes to how you process and and how you operate in the world. And there is no, just like I said, there's no supplement and no medicine that can overcome a shitty diet. Um, There's no amount of working out that can overcome a shitty diet either. Mm -hmm. In terms of our own internal workings and and how metabolically flexible we are, 
if you're putting in garbage and, you know, like you said, you can look as good as you want, but it still doesn't mean that you're healthy on the inside. It still doesn't reduce your risk for infection and it still doesn't boost the immune system in the same way as starting to limit carbohydrates, maybe limiting or, or, or shrinking down your feeding window does. So let's talk about some of the practices because Kara, you've looked at over a thousand patients who have been on CGMs more so than probably any medical doctor has um, just due to the nature of your y'all's company. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot more, um, should I put these kind of these global values of what people can do to get healthier? Yeah, hundred percent. So that we kind of break it into four big categories. So first is diet. We're always going to start with diet. Cause like you said, that is the most important thing to focus on first. It's going to make the biggest difference. We start with diet and that can include then the second pillar, which is meal timing, fasting. So we can dive into that. And then it's exercise and then stress and sleep because poor sleep is a stressor on the body. We can link that together as stress. So starting with diet, um, we don't have to be zero carb. You don't have to completely eliminate carbohydrates to be healthy. But in general, most people, I would say, are eating more carbohydrates than are probably ancestrally normal. Um, in general, most ancestral diets have about 16 to 22% of calories from carbs. And meanwhile, our dietary recommendations are 45 to 65% of your calories from carbs. So there's a big discrepancy there. So I think, again, what the government is telling people is normal to eat is probably a little off from what is actually best for you. Um, so in general, I think people can do better from lowering that threshold of carbohydrates a little bit. That doesn't mean you have to be keto. That doesn't mean you have to be zero carbohydrate. But you can also titrate your carbohydrate intake to your level of activity. Somebody who's working out a lot, based still eating whole foods, can tolerate more carbohydrates than somebody who's not going to the gym at all, not moving at all. So if you're that person where you, you haven't started working out at all, that's okay. Let's start with cutting down those carbs further because you're not going to be burning through as much of your glucose storage space, your glycogen. Um, and then number one golden rule with food nutrition is eat whole foods, eat as close to the original state as possible. So instead of a protein bar, eat high quality protein, right? So like grass fed meat, eat pasture raised eggs, try to eat as close to the whole state as possible. Instead of juice, eat a whole piece of fruit. You're not going to overeat it as much when it's in this original state and really, really prioritize protein. Um, I have found that on average, most people are under consuming protein, even though the messaging again from mainstream nutrition is that everyone's overeating protein. I'm not finding that to be true when I'm actually looking at what people are eating. Um, Protein is the most satiating macronutrient and we want to focus on protein and then fill up the rest of the plate. So those are like the big picture nutrition rules. When it comes to fasting and meal timing, the biggest recommendation I can give to people is an earlier time-restricted eating window. Um, So this is the concept of chrononutrition. So it's aligning our circadian rhythm with our intake. And so we have... um, we have a normal approximate 24 hour circadian rhythm, right? And we have a master clock that is regulated mostly by light exposure. So making sure you get some light exposure during the day and trying to avoid those artificial lights at night can help regulate that master circadian rhythm. But we also have peripheral clocks in all of our organ systems. So 
your insulin sensitivity works on a circadian rhythm. We are least insulin sensitive in the middle of the night and we are most insulin sensitive in the middle of the day. So you could eat the same meal at noon and you could eat the same meal at midnight and I promise you, you're going to have very dramatically different glucose responses. So trying to align your eating window more into those daylight hours when we are meant to be processing food is, is going to make a really big difference. One of the biggest mistakes I see is people eating these really late night dinners or when do we most commonly eat sweets? It's usually late at night. Um, not that I'm a proponent of sweets, but if you're going to do it, try to do it earlier in the day because um, that's going to make a big difference. I see a lot of people who are just, they save, they calorie restrict all day and then they have a big dinner because they're hungry because they've been restricting themselves all day. And then they have a bunch of sweets and then their glucose is in these crazy high values all night long. And then they're getting worse sleep because their glucose is high. And so what we want to do is shift those calories either earlier, front load your calories, front load your carbohydrates, and it's going to make a big difference for a lot of people. So general rule of thumb is like try to stop eating about three hours before bed um, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. seems to work pretty well for most people, but it, it's also kind of variable. So it depends person to person of what you're going to see is making the most impact. Yeah, there is a, a, a great book called Keto Fast by Dr. Joseph Mercola, who I'm a huge mm -hmm. fan of and I'll have on the show at some point. Um, and I think the there was many key takeaways in that book. And of course, he's 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 really talking about the power of fasting combined with the power of ketogenic cycling, you know, for three to four weeks at a time at different intervals, but really in the fasting portion. And one of the things he said, if you make only one change into your dietary change, it is to shorten your window, but leave at least four hours before you go to bed at night without any calories coming in. So if you go to bed at 10 each night, that means you are done putting anything with calories in your mouth, even tea with honey. Mm -hmm. You have nighttime tea and you put honey in it. That happens at the very latest at 6 p.m. on the dot, and then you go to bed at 10, that's four hours of change. And what that's doing is it's giving space for the mitochondria to not only process things, but then rest as they would normally rest. Dr. Sachin Panda, you know, really got exposed and blown up um, with a lot of his research from Dr. Rhonda Patrick, who then relayed that on Joe Rogan's and to her own podcast and YouTube channel. And a lot of his work was pertaining to that, the circadian rhythm of our microbiome, how we process carbohydrates, not only better during the day, on any point in the year, but better during the summertime. Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean it's a free for all, as we will talk about here with my own, with my own, uh, with my own CGM scores and what I was doing. You know, I, I really threw caution to the wind. Like, let me eat not 50 grams of any particular carb. Let me eat what I actually want to eat to feel satisfied. And you know, when I went ham on sweet potatoes or white rice, that that was an issue, even if it was during the daytime because of my genetics, and even if I've squatted or lifted heavy weights, it still didn't. It curbed it and definitely helped, but it still was going to make me capable of eating 200 to 300 grams of carbohydrates in one whack. Mm -hmm. um, so that then we can get into the personal stuff here in a minute, but I just want people to know that one of the key messages that I learned um, over the years in travel is that we need to pay attention to the circadian rhythm of the earth, that in the summertime, we have this extra energy. We have higher testosterone. We process carbohydrates better. We're, we're able to go, 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 do, do, do much better. In the wintertime, that's not the case. It's more of a rest and digest. We have less sunlight. We are supposed to sleep longer. Probably don't want to hold the same training schedule or the same you know, work schedule in the wintertime as we do in the summertime. But for most people, it's the same year around. And I just find that fascinating, uh, Sachin Panna's work when it comes to that stuff in terms of how we process carbohydrates and you know, I, I had always thought too, another, another personal example was that if I would carb backload, you know, I think there was a book that came out maybe 10, 15 years ago called uh, Carb Night. And it was talking about carbohydrate backloading 
That's one of the ways you can cheat that. If you work out during the day and you go zero carb during the day, then eat them at night, um, you're going to do fine. And while that may be true for a lot of people, due to my genetics, that simply wasn't the case. I I still can't get away with eating copious amount of carbohydrates at any point of the year or any point of the day. And again, this circles back to why it's so important to have personal data and why the CGM is such an amazing tool in the modern world. Because there are very few things that can give us I mean, there's nothing else that's going to give us a 24-7 look at how we're responding to the food that we eat, correct? Yeah, it's, it's basically the only technology and metric out there right now where you're getting a 24-7 look, which is amazing because I think a lot of these books that were written before, clearly they didn't have this data available and, and they're doing the best they can. But then you see the data and you're like, that doesn't really actually play out to be so good. So when you can see this data 24-7 throughout the night, you realize what's happening while you're sleeping. Um, and you can see that that massive carb load before bed is, is not playing out really for anyone. I haven't seen it work for anyone. Um, maybe if you're a high-performing athlete, but even that, most likely not. And so it's, it's an amazing tool because you can see everything that's going on. And not just in relation to what you're eating, but also if you're having a lot of stress or if you're not sleeping a lot, which we can dive into with your data, of course, and it's <laughs> probably taken a hit recently. Oh, but yeah. based on the personalized responses as well, we are a unique compilation of genetics and epigenetics and microbiome and environment and all of these factors are strong influencers on how you're going to uniquely respond to food. Um, So like you said, white rice is not as good for you. Um, White rice is one of the grains that I actually respond to the best to. And then, you know, my colleague, Carly, another dietitian is very similar to me. She has a massive spike to white rice. And so we are all very different. We have all these different factors playing in that you can't predict very well how you're going to respond to a food based off of traditional metrics like glycemic index. It doesn't always match up. Um, So there's a lot of foods that maybe people think are super starchy. I'm going to have a huge glucose response to, and then they try it and it's actually pretty good for them. And then vice versa. Um, So like for me, for example, quinoa versus white rice, quinoa is a much higher glucose spike when other people probably have the opposite or you wouldn't predict that. So you really don't know those things unless you're measuring it. Um, You can't really feel it. And if you're trying to do it on a glucose meter, you're, you're probably going to miss that curve a little bit. You could check your glucose every 10, 15 minutes and prick your finger 24-7 for like two hours to see what that response looks like. It's not very practical and it's not very fun. And you're still probably going to miss some data points just inherently due to the nature of our glucose changing so quickly. So it, it's really helpful to pinpoint what foods are uniquely the best for your body as opposed to you know what people are telling you you should eat versus what your friend is eating. You can actually pinpoint and kind of see, make a plan that makes sense for you. Yeah. I think really, Oh, go ahead, Dan. And I think one interesting point is that we discovered is when we started this before we started, we started reading a lot of research papers, prepare to start this company. And one of the things we identified when we started is that the gender differences, almost all research out there is based on men and women are pretty much neglected. So when we started measuring and tracking information of women, uh, the response was contradictory a lot of times to the research out there. Maybe Kara can dive a little bit into that. Yeah, so a lot of times, um, especially premenopausal women are excluded from research studies because having a menstrual cycle is another variable you have to control for. It makes it more complicated to do the research study. But then we're realizing that the research doesn't always apply equally. Um, there's a lot of examples of this in medicine, not just in nutrition. One big one that I think is really interesting to know is we always think of classic heart attack symptoms as like your shoulder pain, 
chest pain, but that really seems to only occur in men. We didn't start realizing that women present with different signs and symptoms of a heart attack until we start to see it in real life. Um, so you miss these big things. And, and a big one that we were missing from glucose management was the big question mark around fasting, fasting in women. Um, is prolonged fasting bad? Is it going to affect us? The research wasn't really done. There were a few people voicing their concerns that maybe the intermittent fasting research doesn't necessarily apply to women as well. Um, and so we were kind of going into this a little bit blind, not sure what was going to turn out, how it was going to be. And now seeing enough people's data, some observations become pretty clear. One is that the regular 16-8, you know, early time restricted eating, that shortened window, pretty good for pretty much everyone. Um, I still wouldn't recommend it if you are like pregnant or breastfeeding or if you're like struggling with an eating disorder. But for vast majority of people that shortened window earlier in the day is going to do really well, which a lot of people were saying could be a concern for women, but I have not seen that to be true in glucose data. Um, but what I have seen a huge discrepancy in is like the OMAD style of eating one meal a day. I haven't really seen any man respond poorly to an OMAD style of eating, but I've seen women sort of a mixed bag. Um, one thing, you know, when we are fasting for 20 hours, we should see glucose in that fasting range, that 70 to 90, and it should be gradually decreasing and then kind of staying stable. It fluctuates sometimes that's normal, but it should stay relatively stable in that zone. And when it's starting to rise while you're fasting, that is a signal that your body is under too much stress. You're starting to initiate a stress response. Cortisol is being released and glucose is increasing because the body thinks it's under too much stress. And we start to see that um, in the OMAD style of eating for women who are particularly like lean, healthy, already working out a lot, maybe doing sauna, cold therapy, calorie restricting. So they have all these other hormetic stressors going on. And you add on this really restricted eating window and it's just pushing it too much. So that allostatic load, the stress tolerance seems to be different between a man and a woman. Um, so those patterns started to become fairly clear. It's, it's easy to test that if you have a glucose meter or a CGM, you can see what's happening when I'm fasted. Is it rising or do I seem okay? You can see your stress tolerance that way. But it's kind of a mixed bag with OMAD and extended fast for these lean, low body fat percentage women. So that's something that really wasn't in the data that has now become pretty clear from a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think I think what really popularized that was the warrior diet when that book came out. And it was mm -hmm. like, hey, this is this is very ancestral. And while that may be true for men that it was ancestral to eat, you know, a large meal at night after going out for a hunt or fishing and coming back with the meat for the tribe, women who were gathering, not on the hunting squad, were likely having a bit of what they were gathering throughout mm -hmm. the day. So whether that be nuts, berries, shrubs, tubers, and obviously they're not going to eat raw tubers. I know that's a very uh, uh, <laughs> problematic and serious process to get cassava into a usable <laughs> edible form of food. But at the same time, you know, in the preparation of those foods or in the gathering of those foods, it's quite likely that there was some caloric intake throughout the day. Also, if you look at it from the hormonal standpoint that women's biology is really set in motion to create and care mm -hmm. for children. It's creates to, to be able to house and grow a child and all the hormones that go around that 28 day cycle, give or take a few days are going to pertain to the need to recreate life. So when you start pulling away certain things that are necessary for that, then the body might say, 
hey, we're not we're not suitable to sustain life right now. Let's start to shift into more of a fight or flight response. Let's kick in some of these hormones that will keep us awake at night or give us more energy. And and it's not you know it becomes instead of reproduce it becomes survival. And that can be a, you know, a long-term issue for a lot of people when they stay in some of these um, more strict approaches to health for long periods of time without actually knowing what's happening on the inside in real time. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, that seems to be what, what's happening is that we are not built for the same purposes. And we have to recognize that and, and what's happening with our physiology. And that's why I always recommend just always measure data over dogma, try test something out, always experiment, but then back it up with data to see if it's working or not, not just subjective experience. Your subjective, subjective experience is important too, but we want to see data with it because you don't always know what's happening and if it's good or bad, especially if it's going to be a long-term approach you're adopting. Yeah. And it may, what may start, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of these people who start off vegan and end up going, you know, full circle the other way, you know, uh, Mark Sisson did it, Rob Wolf did it, uh, Paul Saladino did it. And you always feel great the first few weeks or maybe the mm-hmm. first few months, because it's probably the first time you've switched from eating processed foods into eating more clean, natural whole foods. And, but eventually you run up against the wall, unless you have one of the very few people on this planet who have the genetics to process that. Maybe you're a high methylator. Maybe you have, um, you know, the ability to break down fiber at a faster rate into short chain fatty acids. Who knows? That's a whole different rabbit hole. As far as women who feel great on these longer extended fasts, that if you're just basing it on how you feel, you may be getting a lot of energy from some of the fight or flight hormones switching on. It may feel really good to do that for a short window before you hit the wall and have complete burnout. And then all of a sudden you're left scratching your head saying, wow, I'm missing periods. I don't know how to really combat this. I don't know how I got myself into this because I felt great for so long. And now all of a sudden I don't know. I'm up shit Creek without a paddle. I don't know what went wrong. Yeah. And I see that all the time. A lot of our customers are very health conscious. They've already been on a long health journey and they'll come to us and they'll say, yeah, I've been doing this fasting style and keto for five years. And now all of a sudden I'm having all these problems. My labs are abnormal and my thyroid's abnormal and my Hashimoto's out of control and I don't know what's happening. Like I felt so good. Um, So I think it's exactly right. It's, it's at first you feel amazing because you're removing some negative things, but then it starts to catch up to you over time of the effects of some of these more extreme approaches. Yeah. And, and uh, that, you know, you brought up the ketogenic diet. It's, there's no question that people do feel great doing that. It's, this is not, this is not to say one is better than the other. And it's certainly not to say that I'm only going to eat fat for the whole rest of my life. It's just to create that flexibility. Mark mm-hmm. Sisson talks about that a lot in the keto reset diet. It's not meant to replace one form of eating. It's to make you better at both forms of eating. And, you know, even if you look at the Inuit, who you could say for a large part are eating, you know, 80 to 90% calories from seal and whale blubber and things like that, very high on the ketogenic side. They're still going to have a period of time in the summertime where they're eating berries and whatever fruit is seasonally available to them. And so even they are not ketogenic 24 seven throughout the year. And it may be the inverse of some other populations in terms of, you know, what is the primary macronutrient load that they're taking in. But at the same time, they're still creating flexibility by introducing carbohydrates periodically. And that is something to keep in mind. Like we can't be dogmatic about mm-hmm. how we do this. And, and Saladino, once again, he, he so cleverly put, will carbohydrates give me diabetes as the title of his podcast? And the answer is no. And of course mm-hmm. he knew that, but it's just to say, even among the carnivore population, the people who are on the extreme end of, I love meat, I don't need anything else to survive. It's carbohydrates aren't going to give Paul Saladino diabetes. Then they're likely not going to give other people diabetes as long as they are done in a controlled manner and they know what's doing what. So 
I think um, I think there's an absolute ton of, of data that people can get from this. It's it's incredibly important and it's super informative. It informed me a lot. So let's dive in here in the last ten minutes on you know some of the key takeaways that I found. You know when I was doing this again, I brought up you know on my carb test with um, through Rob, Rob Wolf's book Wired to Eat. You know the best the best thing available then was the blood glucose, and we were doing it post post uh, prandial at two hours after the meal. And I did great with sweet potatoes. And you know as I loaded up the amount that I wanted to have with fat with protein, with salt, with all the things that I would normally eat that with, we saw some pretty interesting things. We saw this um, this triple spike happen. So unpack what my body's doing when it, when I receive this triple spike because it, it certainly wasn't clearing it out easily. Um, and, and even though, you know, I may have returned to a normal range, we saw what, what I guess I guess I have two questions here. What's happening during the triple spike mm-hmm. and what is happening when I receive a big spike, but then two hours later, it's back within the norm. Right. So the double triple spikes, which we see a lot when we're doing this combination of a lot of fat with a lot of starch. Um, And I characterize this as a undesirable response, but still signals a healthy metabolism. So when I see that response in your data, I can tell that you're not insulin resistant, but we don't want to see that response often. So it's not a good response, but you still are healthy. So what's happening is we're loading the body with a ton of energy filled with a ton of fat and a ton of starch. And the fat is slowing down digestion. And so that starch, those glucose is going to get released in bouts. It's going to get released over a long period of time. And so at first you have the initial digestion, initial glucose increase, body stimulates insulin, and it brings it back down. That's how I know you're insulin sensitive and not insulin resistant is you come back down for a little bit. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's a ton more glucose still in the system. We have to keep digesting this. And then the fat is slowing that down. And so the glucose comes back up and then the body releases more insulin and then it comes back down. And then sometimes we see a third one if it's a really big meal. And so we might see those up and downs. But if you were insulin resistant, it would stay up and and stay there for several hours until the body was done metabolizing it because you're going to have that delayed insulin response and for insulin sensitivity. So while it's not a desirable response, there is like a positive side to it. If you were doing that every day, then eventually you might become insulin insensitive and have that longer response that's never coming back down. So that's something where it's like, if you see that, you can identify that wasn't a great choice, but you know, okay, now I just need to kind of tweak some things and it's going to be okay. Um, So that's essentially what's happening. Optimally, what we want to see in a normal postprandial response is glucose increases, not too high, but an, an increase is expected if you're consuming any carbohydrates. So we're looking at both maximum value um, for optimal glucose, we want to see below 140 most of the time. Again, this is about repeated exposure. We don't want to constantly see you go above 140. Those glucose spikes are the independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So when you're getting really high, then you're damaging the endothelial cells, the lining of your blood vessels, and you're causing oxidative damage, free radicals, and that is what can increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. So we want to see it not spike too high. And then we also want to see it return to pre-meal glucose values within two to three hours of eating. So we want to see it spike and come back down. And that's showing that, okay, glucose went up because you ate carbs, not too high because your body is insulin sensitive. And then we released insulin in a timely manner and your body responded to that signal from insulin. And we came back down and then we could stabilize it back down into a homeostatic normal range. Um, if that spike stays really high for a long time, that might show that not sensitive to the effects of insulin. 
Um, so essentially, we want to see that small area under the curve with the postprandial response. Does that help? Kind of yeah, that? yeah, that, that's huge. So, and and what's great here is that you know, I think I think what Rob Wolf was really trying to get people to is he said pick out your favorite carbohydrate sources, whether that's chips. Mm -hmm. Uh, sweet potatoes, white rice, whatever the favorites are, and run those. Bananas, whatever your favorite fruits are, those are the things you want to test. And what's great is with a CGM, you you not only get that data, you get so much more data, but it really is about seeing what are your favorite foods that you eat more often. And, and I think what I'm gathering from you there is, you know, even if my blood glucose responds well with one spike and it comes back down within two to three hours, if it's going well above 140 each time I eat that food at that quantity, I either need to reduce that or, or switch that food out, right? So if exactly. my favorite thing is, is one particular type of, say, mangoes are my favorite fruit, and every time I eat it, I go up to 180, and I return to within normal range within two hours, that's still causing oxidative damage. So maybe mm -hmm. instead of mango, I switch for blackberries, and blackberries I do really well with. I don't go above 140, return within the two-hour window to normal, and then that can be my sweet treat from the fruit family in terms of, you know, what I want to do to, to get, to get, you know, easily digested something sweet to, uh, you know, maybe a natural healthy dessert can be chosen better if I know those numbers. Um, I find the spike thing very interesting because for a long time, there was, that, that was something that was taught. Like, Hey, if you eat your carbohydrates with fat, fiber, and protein, it's going to slow the digestion. You won't see a big response and it's going to look perfect, but it doesn't look perfect. And in fact, you could argue that it's actually making the body work harder because now the pancreas has got to do, it's got to pump that surge of insulin, not once, not twice, maybe three times just to keep things in range. And even though I'm insulin sensitive because I've paid attention to my diet, I sleep well for the most part when I don't have a newborn and I lift weights, which is also a critical thing for insulin resistance. Um, maybe that's not the end of the world, but if I'm choosing something regularly, this is important here. If I'm choosing to eat sweet potatoes regularly because it's my favorite starch, I know now that that has to be reduced either in frequency or in quantity, because if I'm going to go back to that several nights a week, over time, I'm going to start running into issues. Over time, my body's not going to maybe respond in the same way that it did with that one triple spike that we saw. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct. So it first comes with knowledge, right? First, you have to know what's happening so that you can make the right decisions. And for example, with, with your double, triple spice with the sweet potatoes, if you had checked from, with a glucose meter at maybe two hours, maybe you were in like one of those down troughs and you would have thought my glucose is at 90, like things are looking perfect. And you just wouldn't have known that it's actually on its way back up and it's staying high for a while. You know, you can easily miss those things if you don't have that baseline knowledge. And so we do variations of, of Rob Wolf's test where it's like, okay, let's pick your favorite foods and let's try them in an isolated form. We don't normally eat foods isolated by themselves. You know, we don't normally eat two bananas for breakfast, but we can try it by itself to see how you respond. And we can compare it to a bunch of other whole food carbohydrates and see where, where you like lie best. And let's say you love bananas and you're always getting to 180. We can do some hacks to try to include that going to try to include foods that you love. You know, maybe it's something where it's like, okay, that has to be a small portion size. You can try it right after a workout when you're really insulin sensitive. We can even eat a little bit of protein and fat first and then the banana. The problem comes with the protein and fat with the carbohydrates when we're doing really big portion sizes or when we're doing refined carbohydrates with a lot of processed oils. So there are some hacks we can do if you really love a food, but first you have to know how you respond in the first place. I love that. And, and speak to, you know, 
I'll, I'll mention this in the in the intro, but you know, you guys don't sponsor the show. You're, I've worked with a number of CGM companies. You guys have the best product to date. I'm just going to say that flat out. Um, talk a bit about what you guys do when you walk somebody through this, because it it really is. Um, I mean, to 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 give you guys love and support, it is the most complimentary, full service thing that I've worked with in terms of how you guys show up for the people that are that are working with you. Talk a bit about what it looks like if I order a CGM from your company. It shows up. And I stick this thing in my arm and we get started with, with my own dive into my own personal health. Sure. Uh, one of the way it works is you come to the website and you basically fill out a health questionnaire. So before you ever start, we have data about you and what your goals and ambitions are, as well as your baseline state. This is what we can prepare before you ever start. Uh, once you start and you put a device in your arm, we make sure that you're not just left alone, you're you know, trying to figure this out. We make sure that there's someone assigned to you who is constantly looking over your data. And the nice thing about it is, unlike a regular dietitian, a regular team, usually, you know, you talk to them, they give you advice, and then you come back a week later, two weeks later, a month later. Here, as something's happening in your body, we see it in real time as well. So we always intervene in the middle of the situation and tell you how to improve all the time. Uh, so this, it's a constant feedback loop where, one, you're keeping yourself accountable because you're seeing your data in real time. While at the same time, we're keeping you accountable because we're also seeing your data in real time all the time. Uh, so it's just a great way for you to really optimize and improve much quicker and learn much faster, right? There's a lot of things you could do that are steps right now to improve. Um, you know, one of the things that when we did a trial run we first, we, before we started was care was my dietitian, right? And she started telling me what to change about my diet and how to improve, you know? So like before I used to go work out at night, she said, hey, no, do your workout in the morning. You know, because all of a sudden you're eating, you're, I was eating actually funny enough bananas. <laughs> I was eating bananas, uh, a bagel and, uh, <laughs> and a coffee with, you know, milk, right? So all of those things are causing me a huge spike. And by lunch, I was crashing and she just reorganized my diet, put in different, um, regime for my life. Basically, uh, she told me, you know, cut out my window of eating, uh, showed me how to eat better, how to, even if I don't do like something that's bad for me. Uh, try to fix it. You know, for example, there's a lot of people we've worked with that are CEOs of corporations and they work crazy hours and they always, always say, Hey, like I'm not going to cut out sweets. I'm just not. It's just part because I love that. So what they do is actually they say, okay, I know like Mountain Dew and chocolate is bad for me. Which one's less bad for me? And what they'll do is they'll say, you know, I'll do something that's less bad for me. Um, but at least I know my harm is not as bad. So a lot of times it's about just making things that are not as bad in incremental changes. You know, or some, for example, if I am going to do some bad, I'm going to do that small walk, 10 minute walk afterwards, or I'm going to jump down on the floor, do 20 pushups uh, or some breathing exercise. Some, some simple things like that, that fit your special at your life specifically are very helpful. You know, it's everyone's got different regimes. Not everyone has the time to go to the gym for three hours a day, but there's small things you could do every single day that make a big difference. And that's kind of key here. The key is to really understand everything about you. So we always say like how much you give in is how much you get out. So, you know, Kyle, you were tracking everything. You were tracking your sleep, you were tracking your stress, your food, your macro macronutrients. Uh, that was very helpful for us to help you understand your patterns. Uh, so it's always about, you know, good information in, good information out. But personalization is really key. And maybe Kara can talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, so we have customers coming for a wide variety of reasons. Sometimes you're already super healthy and you just want more data about yourself. So we're also there to help nerd out with you and point out different things that are happening in the data and different research that's coming out. And then sometimes it's people who, who are showing some signs of insulin resistance. And we need to make some changes and, and that might take some time and meeting them wherever they're at. 
So the dietitians are really there as a resource for whatever your goal is with the data and we're there to meet you. So we're not following, like, we're not like prescribing a diet um, or something you have to follow. It's more about just being there for you. So it's not just a bunch of data that you're not really sure what to do with, but there's some sort of signal within that noise. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And it's it's in real time. You know, like you guys mm-hmm. hit me up, I get a notification from the app, like, hey, looks like, uh, you know, the last thing you ate caused this, this, and this to happen, you know, talk a bit about that, you know, and, and we just get back and forth, you know, through the phone and really start to organize, like, it gave me a, a broader perspective and more awareness around the impact that food is having on my body. And maybe then, the, you know, if I, like I said, I have a newborn, we got some data on that, where uh, what happens with the lack of sleep? Well, we have blood glucose spikes throughout the night. And then maybe the next day, my carb tolerance is not quite as good as, as post- you know, squat day, it's not going to be the same thing. And that's okay. But if I'm mindful of that, and I understand there's a connection there, then my food choices can change to, to, you know, optimize my daily inputs of carbohydrates a little bit better knowing, hey, I slept like shit last night, and I'm gonna probably sleep like shit for the next six weeks, probably can do better having a little bit less carbohydrates or really sticking to things that I know are going to be fine and not cause spikes like any amount of blackberries, blueberries, raspberries for me do very well. Um, and, and for Saladino as well. So, you know, there, there are those choices like, okay, if I'm not going to go full keto or I'm not going to go full carnivore, how can I still get something sweet that I would enjoy, but not have, you know, these radical shifts that are going to lead to health issues while I'm, I'm taking away, you know, like I'm pointing to my bed right now, not that people can see this. Um, <laughs> well, I'm taking away one of the cornerstone pieces of foundational health, which is sleep. And it's, it's not going to improve for a period of time. So let me lean into that with, with what I know with greater awareness around the food that goes into myself and see how that shifts, how I think and feel during the day. hundred percent. Yeah. like sleep and stress are, are one big pillar of health. And if you need to work on that because you don't have good sleep hygiene or something, then we can definitely work on that. But something like a newborn, no amount of sleep hygiene is going to help you get better sleep. So then you have to compensate for that. And then you have the knowledge that, okay, maybe I need to rely heavier on diet and moving throughout the day because I have this other pillar that right now is a little bit impaired. So knowledge is where it really all originates. You have to first know what's going on, awareness of your situation before you can make any sort of meaningful impact. Yeah, and it's fascinating. We have people we worked with who are on these extreme polar extremes where they're either carnivore or ketogenic diet followers, and there's people who are vegan and vegetarian. And they're always surprised that we don't ever tell them to change their diet You know, in regard to go from ketogenic to vegan or vice versa we do is help them optimize what they're already doing. Uh, and that's really the key. The key here is to provide you data that's helping you make informed decisions rather than say, no, this is the wrong diet. This is the right diet. There is no one diet. Everyone's body's completely different. Like we've talked about, and that's really key to understand here. I love that. Well, where can people find you online? How can people get themselves uh, a CGM from NutriSense? Sure. You guys can go to Nutrisense.io and you just fill out a quick health questionnaire. And we have a 14 day option as well as we have monthly subscriptions you can sign up for. Um, so check us out, Nutrisense.io. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's show with Dan and Kara from Nutrisense. Some things I just want to lay out for people if you're still listening right now is there are key takeaways from this. Sleep, one of the most important things. There's a book called Sleep by Nick Little Hales that I absolutely love. Uh, if you've made it this far and you don't have much more to listen to, then uh, forgive me for not linking to that in the show notes. But uh, Sleep by Nick Little Hale is awesome. Um, 
what else is important? Genetics are important in figuring that out, but you're going to fine tune and figure this out without genetics. So if you had to spend 400 bucks on a genetic test or 400 bucks on figuring out uh, your carbohydrate tolerance through food with a company like NutriSense, I suggest going with NutriSense first because it's going to give you even more detailed information. How you train matters and lifting weights seems to be one of the best ways to increase insulin sensitivity. So if you're overweight or maybe you're a little bit metabolically unfit, you love sugar or any of these things, lifting weights will get you there faster into metabolic flexibility than simply doing cardio. And I have no issues with long form cardio. I ran a 55K ultra back in the day. I love endurance training, but it's just not the same when it comes to building insulin uh, or breaking down insulin resistance and building back metabolic flexibility. So lift heavy weights. Um... And then mix in all the other things. You know, walking after a meal is very important, not only for digestion, but improving blood sugar values. Getting to bed at the same time each night and waking up at the same time each day, if you can, is critical. Now, I'm not doing that right now with the newborn, as we talked about on the podcast, but that is a huge one that Nick Littlehale talks about in his book, Sleep. And, um, you know, past that, stress. So if you're a stressed out person or if life is stressing you out externally because of all the shit that's happening in the world, that's okay. I'm right there with you. But meditation and breath work are two fundamental practices that can help you dive deeper into that. And uh, I just think that there's so much more there to explore. If you want help with that, visit my dudes at uh, powerspeedendurance.com and the art of breath section will get you right. All right. I love you guys. We'll see you in a week.